Hello and welcome to Behind Closed Doors Series 3 Women on the Move podcast series. Hello, I am Donnie Walford, the Managing Director and Founder of Behind Closed Doors. Today's guest is Estella Callahan. She is the Founder and Director of 3P Delivery Authority. She is a thought leader and project manager specialising in understanding the social purpose sector and its delivery needs. Estelle works with government, not-for-profits, philanthropic bodies and corporate social responsibility. She has turned around projects and teams from the brink of despair to sustainable outcomes achievement. Over 25 years in the field and with three careers spanning music education, public administration and coach consultant, Estelle has developed her own project management method to respond to common problems and to resonate with the social purpose sector. So Estelle O'Callaghan, it's so lovely to have you as our podcast guest. Thank you so much, Donnie. It is a total privilege to be amongst your guests. I've been listening to your podcast for some time and I've always been so inspired by the guests you have, so I'm very humbled to be counted amongst them. Oh, well, um, I'm sure you've got a wonderful story to tell all of our listeners, uh, Estelle, and, and I'm dying to hear how you um, established your business and what, what your um, initial impressions were when you did start your business and, and what brought it all on. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Oh, thank you. Yes. So I am from Melbourne. And in fact, today I come to you from the lands of the Kulin Nation and I pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. And I am very, very passionate about creating social change because I want to live in a society where we are safe and inclusive and we have equal access to opportunity. At university, I studied arts and music and latterly um, public administration. And um, look, I've always found education such a joy and, and a total privilege because I know not everybody has access to it, you know, a total privilege. And really, that has taken me on such a life journey itself. I was privileged to be awarded a Churchill Fellowship and that was marvellous. I went to the UK to hone my singing skills, actually. I specialised in oratorio and cantata styles of singing, which was not very developed here as a specialty. So I went to the UK and stayed in the UK to develop that specialty. So explain to our listeners, just explain what what those two, I I'm not familiar with Yes, it. right. So, so for listeners, that, those two genres... Generally speaking, they're the earlier types of genres with your big choral works like Handel's The Messiah, Bach's The St Matthew Passion, where you've got the big choir and you've got some soloists standing out the front. So there are solo works, but they're the main sort of body of work, I suppose, are the big choral works with, with soloists. So do you break into song at any time during a podcast, Estelle? Oh, I don't know about that, Donnie. I think I'm a bit scratchy at the moment because, you know, we've just been in the world's longest lockdown. Yes, and, I know. Um, you know, I've tried to keep my practice going, but when you don't have an event to work towards, 
it can be a little bit tricky. So it's fabulous that you've had such a diverse background and experiences across a range of industries. You've led careers in music education, coaching and public administration. So what inspired you to pursue all three very different sectors and how have you leveraged that background and experiences? Yes, well, Donnie, when you put it like that, it's a slightly unusual career um, (laughs) across quite diverse and and, uh, industries and it's a little bit unusual and I can actually bring then broad expertise to the way I serve my clients now. And really I started my career as a music teacher, which I did for five years, and that seemed to be very natural to me coming out of university. I was very much involved in the cultural arts at the time and I loved it. I I was a singing teacher in particular and I taught uh, girls at a secondary school And it was really inspiring to see them literally find their own voice and to create this instrument inside of themselves where they found they could express and um, increase their volume and their visibility through this instrument that they already had. So that was actually really inspiring to see them develop in that way. Then I went into the public service. I was looking for something different and um, to be stimulated in a different way. And I actually found my teaching was really helpful because running a team, then I could, I was very honed in on where staff members were up to in their development and I could find a safe way to stretch them and make sure they, they would grow and develop um, and move on in that way. And again, I loved my time in the public service. I worked across lots of different social policy departments and I did end up working on some very large multi-billion dollar government um, priorities across policy legislation and infrastructure. But you know, Donnie, my biggest regret about those 15 years was that I didn't discover coaching earlier. I discovered coaching at a point at which I had already decided to leave. Oh, all right. And and what did did someone suggest you have a coach? Yes, I was looking for something. I knew I needed to make this decision to leave, but I didn't know how to do it. And a friend of mine said, "Oh, how about a coach?" And I said, well, "What's that?" <laughs> you know, I'm not I'm not in a sports team. <laughs> and Seriously, I set myself three goals. One was personal and, um, and the others were career. I would have thought and it would have normally taken me a good five years to achieve those three goals and I had them down all ticked off in less than 12 months because I hired a coach. And I just then I realised, all oh, right, I wish I'd had one 10 years earlier because I would have achieved so much more and, and faster. Having that coaching experience at that time, I knew then that setting up my own business was the right transition and that it was, I went into that very confidently. I developed a company and I, what it means, I, I call myself a social purpose project manager. And what that means is that I go into teams in governments and community sector um, who have become stuck and when they're rolling out a, a strategic initiative or a reform program, a grants program, and they can't quite put their finger on it or they've run off the rails, they've, they've drifted too far from their purpose, or sadly, they've even imploded and there's a thousand shattered pieces to sort of pick up and put back together again. And Johnny, I always work on the grounds that I build capacity in the teams when I'm in there so that the teams learn what the red flags to look out for, how to respond effectively, how to reduce risk. So the teams I work with rarely make the same mistake twice. <laughs> 
So, so what is the most common project management mistakes made by teams, particularly in the social purpose sector? Can I say before I start, it's very easy to make mistakes because people in the social purpose sector are generally doing 100 things at once. And, and I'm working all the time with people who are smart, well-educated, uh, motivated and working really hard. You know, no project I've ever seen that's become stuck or fallen over has, has done so because the people running it were lazy or didn't get it. They are actually switched on people, which just emphasises to me that project management isn't intuitive. So the three things for me that I see all the time are a lack of clarity around project purpose. You know, a warm, fuzzy purpose is not going to take you to the end of the line successfully. It's like setting a sat-nav. You know, you've got to put in your parameters. You've got to know the suburb, the street name and the number so you know how to get there. Now, you might have to divert if there's heavy traffic you might, or there's roadblocks, you know, you might divert and come back and divert again and come back. If you know what, where you're going and how to get there, it means all your stakeholders will be on the same page and everyone can pace themselves to get to that destination at the timeline and you get there together. Number two is project scope. So purpose and scope often come together, actually. What I find is this sector tends to overpromise anyway because they want to do everything. They're very emotionally attached to their purpose and their mission. They start too big and then they scope up from there. You know, the, the, the project can, can really creep out. And then again, you're thinning your resources. You are increasing your risk. And any attempt to evaluate a project that has experienced a lot of scope creep is kind of meaningless, which is a terrible result for everybody. So I'd say you've got to put that fence around your project. And that means having some quite challenging discussions around what's in and what's out and who's in and who's out. Number three really is what I call a disconnect. It's a disconnect between the why and the what in the project. If you think of a project rollout, a successful rollout goes on three tiers. It's why, how, and what. And so many teams I see jump from the why, which is their project purpose. They've got a confirmed budget and they think, great, off we go. And there's two reasons why they jump into the action straight away. Either they're really excited and they can't wait to get going or they are terrified they're already behind schedule because the timelines are unrealistically tight and they just don't have time for planning. They've just got to start. Either way, you're running into trouble and you're going to unravel about six to eight months in. You've got to do your planning piece, which is the how piece in the middle. Planning doesn't have to take forever. It can be really quick. You have the conversations and then you're connecting the actions to the purpose. You've got to have that connecting piece. So Estelle, just, just listening to you, you don't have to just be in the social purpose sector. They're common mistakes I think anyone makes when they're, when they're executing strategy or projects. Yes, actually the research proves that. Um, PwC did an iconic study back uh, about almost 10 years ago and they, they studied 10,640 projects across industries, across about 30 different countries and only 2.5% of those projects actually met all of their outcomes. Because Whoa. of these common problems. <laughs> Pretty sad. <laughs> I rest my case. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. You're spot on, Donnie. So congratulations on your first book, Rock Your Rollout. Love the title. Now, it was released earlier this year. In your book, you talk to us through a project management method, 
the Ganvi method, am I yes, correct yes, in its pronunciation? Yes, Gan- I call it Ganvi. Oh, Ganvi, um, that you have developed specifically for the social purpose sector, but maybe when you talk to us about this, um, it might be for any sector as well. So what, it, what actually is the Ganvi method and why does the social purpose sector need its own special method? Thank you so much, Donna. Yes, I'm quite proud of my achievement getting that book out. <laughs> I'd been meaning <laughs> to write it for years and really when 2020 came around, I had never had enough time to write it, but a lot of my clients being in the social purpose sector uh, were immediately repurposed appropriately to emergency COVID response and that freed up a lot of my time. So I decided to put my head down and uh, write this book and I actually hired a coach. I hired a specialist. Yeah, I did. I did. A specialist book coach, Catherine Mora of Change Empire Books. And really, if I hadn't had Catherine with me, I would not have finished. As I was writing the book, I'd done a lot of research prior to that and I've come up with a method that I call the Ganvi method and that's a combination of my maiden name and married name. So the Ganvi method combines some traditional project management elements and some of my own that are based on research and it drills the whole lot down into a very simple and clear method because, and that's not because the sector won't get it, they're smart people, it's because they don't need all the other stuff. You know, the vast majority of projects can actually be done quite simply and effectively through a method that has enough structure to build consistency around the structure, but also incorporate some flexibility. So it is adaptive. It's a framework. And there's just three elements and one primary tool. And the three elements are life cycle phases. So there are life cycle phases, which are a traditional project management approach. Mine start after you've got the budget. And they follow the typical project journey through to the end of that funded cycle. So even if you're going for reinvestment and you plan to continue your project, you still have there are still things you need to do to wind up that period of funding, right? And in my method, um, each life cycle phase has its own goal because you need to know what you're aiming to achieve in that chunk of time. The second element is what I call activity domains. And these are the key areas that research tell us need to be managed efficiently and effectively to achieve project goals. And they are governance, financial management, stakeholder engagement and communication, capability management, risk management, and outcomes and benefits management. So there are six key domains. And what I do with these domains is filter all the activity through them. And when you filter the activities through those domains, instead of being overwhelmed with, say, 60 actions that you just randomly have to do and sort of, you know, panicking that you've got these 60 actions, that might be 10 each. And they're themed. So you realise, oh, those ones are actually connected. They're all about stakeholders. Oh, these ones are actually all about risk. Oh, these ones are about governance. And immediately the shoulders go down, you're in control, and it's much better organised. Element three are critical friends because support is actually really essential to anybody trying to roll out um, an initiative. You can't just do it all in your own team. You're too close. You can't make objective assessments sometimes. So I use critical friends who are trained in the Ganvi method um, and preferably are coaches as well. And they uh, help teams to transition successfully from one life cycle phase to the next. 
and they challenge assumptions respectfully and they recommend catch-up strategies where you need to catch up. And they also um, they, they highlight just stopping for a moment just to check if what you're going into that next phase with is still relevant because sometimes anyone who actually did do the planning in the first place and put it on the shelf you know, that stakeholder plan might be quite irrelevant by the time you reach phase three because a lot might have changed since then. So you've got to make sure that what you're going into that next phase is actually relevant. So then you can actually achieve your goal and point towards your goal. And if there are any problems like drift, mission drift, um, or you're unraveling a little bit, that's when you start, you bring it back quickly. So you find problems early and you fix them fast through your critical friends. And then I've just got this one tool. It took me a while to figure this one out. Now, I love it. And I use, uh, I use, I've used a circus name for this one and I love it. It's called the Ganvi Magnificent Matrix. It's like roll up, roll up. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. I love it. And um, it's, a, it's a three-in-one tool. You can map and you can plan and you can report all with that one tool. So it really does drill it down. Is it a software tool, Estelle? Uh, it's a fillable PDF. So it's, it's kind of, yeah, it is software, it is digital, and, um, and it's on, on a one page. Yeah, so it's very easy, simple to use once you've actually figured out and done the courses to, to learn how to do it. I really believe this sector needs its own project management method uh, because it's, it's working with vulnerable people, not bridges and and hospital buildings, you know, and most existing project management courses and books are designed by engineers for engineers. And when I was talking to my clients and interviewing executives, they tell me they send staff on a two-day course and the staff realise about three days in that it does, they don't belong um, because the course is about infrastructure or technology. And so they do the course and then they come back and make it up anyway. Um, and that's a, real, that's a huge waste of money and time and it's uh, not good enough in my book. This, this sector really does need something that's very specific to the way they think and act and the sorts of projects they're doing because they're driving out billions of dollars worth of projects every year, you know, so why wouldn't we wrap something around them? that is specific. So what, what are the three key lessons that sectors can learn from your book? So, Johnny, I think really the three key lessons that I outline um, in the book are, number one, consistency is the key to success. Right. Because what I see constantly when I go out into organisations is that everyone's starting from scratch. Every time they start a project, they start from scratch. And it very much depends on the person leading that team and their innate skill for organisation and um, capacity to actually achieve something. And they, so if you've got a method that incorporates a level of structure with, with some appropriate flexibility, then you can build consistency around, you can build competency rather, around that consistency. And you get into a virtuous cycle of learning because then you can learn what's good, what's not good, and you can take that into your next project because you're going to be approaching it in the same way. So consistency very much is the key to success. Implementation is about planning and doing. You must plan at the beginning. It's not out of date. It's not old-fashioned, and it doesn't have to take a long time if you know what you're doing. You can actually have conversations quite quickly, but you do need to have those conversations. And planning actually stays with you right throughout the journey. 
because you've got to be able to constantly join dots and and see what's coming up and have those conversations. And when you're transitioning into each new life cycle phase, you know, you're still doing an element of planning to make sure that what you're taking forward is relevant and, and still pointing towards the goal. So it's a combination of planning and doing all the time across the project journey. And number three is that really internal skills for social purpose project management are absolutely critical. Organisations shouldn't be relying on people like me to come in and sort out their problems. They should learn these skills internally because it's bread and butter. It really is. And it leads to much much more skilled and professional staff. They're, They're much more motivated. They're getting a lot more stimulation. They're joining dots. Conversations elevate. Decisions, much better decisions are made and much, much greater opportunity for reaching goals very consistently and sustainably. So your your role is very much playing coach to these organisations so they can learn these sustainable skills. Absolutely. Absolutely. Every time, yes. So complementary to your book, I also know you've developed a digital library of resources that you have called the Gamby Digital Library. <laughs> Now we know where the you gotta game love it, don't from. you? You gotta love it. <laughs> uh, so, how can our listeners access this library, and what are the benefits of the resources within it? So, while I was writing the book, I was also writing um, some modules, some learning modules, masterclasses, and producing a range of downloadable tools because I really want this sector to be able to access these sorts of skills really quickly and affordably. So it's kind of like a one-stop shop, if you like, this Ganvey Digital Library. And I primarily work business to business uh, through subscription, but the library, you can access um, individual topics if you wish. And um, these these topics really guide participants to learn about the Ganvey Method and to learn the essentials across those six activity domains, to understand these are the things you need to understand and do. And each module comes with an activity so they can practice and they can practice on their own project. They bring their own project to that lesson and they actually fill in their own project. And I include a quiz, which is a bit tongue-in-cheek, a little bit cheeky there, and it's fun and it just embeds the learning. And I provide a certificate and some points for people who complete that very successfully. And during 2021, I've been teaching the masterclasses uh, live and virtually, but from 2022, they'll be fully on demand as well as an option. I can still do the live, but they'll be on demand um, because some organisations just like fully on demand services. Absolutely. So it's just to, to provide that full suite of services. And, uh, you know, it really makes me feel, Donnie, that I've come full circle from my teaching. Yeah, absolutely. Right You're through to training to now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Back to teaching. Well, te- teaching in a, in a lot of ways is coaching as well, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's right because you are guiding. You're always guiding. And what I love about taking clients through this method as a whole method rather than just going in, sorting something out, teaching them that little bit and, and leaving is teaching them a whole program so they can they can be guided into having these conversations and looking out for things and joining dots and 
you know, instead of keeping their head buried on their desk, they start to lift their head up a little bit and look around and you just see they just regain this control over their project. Fabulous. It's great. And they achieve their goals, which is even better because that's where they create the change. That's exactly. where they actually do create their change. Absolutely. All wonderful tips, uh, great lessons learned. So if our listeners want to connect with you, Estelle, how can they do that? Uh, well, Johnny, I am very happy for people to email me directly. In the first instance, that would be admin at 3pda.com.au. They can also just have a browse through the website. That's www.3pda.com.au. And if they want to purchase the book, if they're a bit curious, that's available through my website or on Amazon and Booktopia. Fantastic, fantastic. Now take us out on a song, Estelle. Oh, no, that's not fair, Donnie. That's not fair. That's not fair. Um, oh, oh, for goodness sakes, what have I been practising of late? Um, well, if I just, oh, no, it's not really fair, but I'll try. And I, I can't even remember the rest of the words because I haven't have done it. awesome voice. <laughs> I love it. Estelle, thank you so much for being our guest today. Wonderful lessons and uh, you're, you're a real champion. Thank, thank you, you so much, Donnie. It's been such a pleasure and a joy speaking with you. And don't, please do not include that singing recording. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. It's awesome. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Women on the Move, the Behind Closed Doors podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. To find out more about Behind Closed Doors, visit www.behindcloseddoors.com where you can find the full range of membership options. Women on the Move was recorded on Ghana lands and is a narrative network audio production.